Well, hi everyone. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor of Union Church in San Clemente and uh, really thankful that you've tuned in and uh, happy to be here with you on Good Friday. If you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 19. That's where we're going to be this afternoon or this evening or whatever it is that you're tuning in. And we're just going to jump right in. Uh, Being that Good Friday is now upon us, we know as Christians that from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, that that weekend and what that weekend represents and means for us is is the most important time in all of human history. It's the most important weekend in all of human history. See, everything we believe as Christians centers around one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, that monumental weekend is the climax, the pinnacle of the earthly work and earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. And as Christians, we we celebrate this weekend. We celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. We celebrate what Jesus accomplished as 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 He rose from death, and we worship Him for His goodness to us. Today, as we dive in to Scripture, we are going to be looking at the Good Friday part. That day, the, the darkest day and the most terrible day, the most awful day in human history, but at the same time, the most glorious, and the most treasured day in human history. We need to understand a little bit about Jesus, and many of you are well acquainted with Jesus. You love him, and you know him, and you worship him, but we never get tired of hearing about Jesus, about his life, his ministry, who he is, and what he's done. That's where our lives are hidden away in. They're they're in Jesus and all of our faith centers around him. So we're going to talk today about Jesus. We need to understand Jesus's life. He was a man who was born about 2,000 years ago and lived in Palestine. He was born to a humble and poor, very young family. And from a young boy till about 30 years old, he followed in his earthly father's footsteps. He worked manual labor as a carpenter with his dad in the family business, presumably. And at about 30 years of age, he he began his earthly ministry. He began his public ministry. And he had no red carpet. He had no advertisements. He had no staff. He had no budget. He had no press secretary. He didn't have any of that. He just had one guy, his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist went before him, kind of grading the pavement and filling the potholes and getting things ready for the coming of the Messiah, And that's what he preached, that Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming. They didn't know his name yet, but the Messiah is coming, and we must repent, we must look to God. The Messiah is coming, and he will bring life, but he will also bring judgment. He was preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus then shows up on the scene at about 30 years of age, and for three, three and a half years, he does ministry. He preaches, and he teaches, and he loves people, and he counsels people, and And he preaches the kingdom of God. He preaches repentance. He points people to himself because he's God become a man. So he points people to life in him. He says he is the living water. He's the bread of life. He's the manna that's come down from heaven. That is actually Jesus, that he's the door of the sheep, the door to God, that he's the way to God. All of these things Jesus says about himself. He preaches and teaches these things and he trains men and women. He trains his disciples. That's what he does during his earthly ministry. And at about age 33, then Jesus is arrested and he's tried as a criminal and then he's executed as a criminal. And the night of Jesus' arrest, 
He knows His hour has come. He is aware that His hour is upon Him. The hour is upon Him. The hour that He has been waiting for. The hour He came to earth for. And that evening, the night before His arrest, He spends with His disciples. Spending time with them. In relationship with them. Eating a meal with them. The Last Supper. He spends time teaching them. And training them some more. And preparing them for His departure. He's their best friend and He's leaving them now. And all the while, during this night... He's with his disciples waiting for the events that will follow the next day. And as he's waiting, the wrath of God is is breathing down his neck. He knows what's awaiting him in the coming hours. He knows the hour that he is now entering into and the work that will need to be accomplished. And late into the night, on that night, our Lord Jesus is arrested in a garden. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's then put through a series of trials that are phony trials, false trials, illegal trials, to be honest. He's ultimately brought before a Roman governor, Pilate. He washes his hands of the situation to alleviate his own conscience. He doesn't like what they're doing to Jesus, but he doesn't have the courage to step in and say no. He's scared for his own reputation and his own future job opportunities, and so... He just lets the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees do what they will with Jesus and they want him crucified. And they'll accept no other form of execution except the worst form of execution, crucifixion. And so Pilate hands Jesus over. And at this point, Jesus is sleep deprived. He's been up all night. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been spit on. He's been put through false trials. He's been lied about. He's been scourged or flogged. So literally his, his skin, his back, his buttocks, his legs, his shoulders has been flayed open by sharp material at the end of leather thong and he would just be whipped over and over and over again. And the skin would just literally be ripped off his back and muscles exposed, sometimes bones exposed. Just many men would die from the scourging before that would precede the crucifixion alone. That is Jesus' state as he now gets handed over in this final verdict and sentenced to the cross. He's in complete agony as he's being handed over, and that's where we pick up our story. John chapter 19, verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Jews, to be crucified. So they took Jesus. The sentence has been handed down and Jesus has been handed over. Verse 18, 17 rather, says that Jesus went out. He went with them. He's following them, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. The sentence is handed down. Jesus is handed over and he goes with them, bearing his own cross. There'd be a lengthy walk between the place of judgment and the place of his actual execution. And he would have to haul either the cross bar, possibly the whole cross to the place of his execution. This is not uncommon for criminals who are being executed via crucifixion. And oftentimes in route to the place of execution, Awaiting the horror that is crucifixion, many of those on this route would snap in sheer terror and agony. 
in anticipation, they would lose all of their senses and they would fight and they would kick and they would pull and oftentimes they'd have to be driven like cattle or dragged like a sack of potatoes. They, they, they'd often lose all sense and they'd do everything they could in a frantic, terrified frenzy to avoid what was about to happen to them. That was not uncommon, but that's not the case with Jesus. Verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross. That's what John says. Jesus didn't have to be forced. He didn't have to be driven. He didn't have to be dragged. This is the hour Jesus was sent for. This is the reason that he came. He knows what he must do. He knows what he will accomplish. And so Isaiah 50 verse 7 says that he set his face like flint. And he moves forward to accomplish this work. He knows what he must do. And he's resolved to accomplish what he has set out to do. He doesn't fight. He doesn't push. He doesn't lose any of his senses. He faces all pain, every gash, every wound, every bruise. There's no need for Jesus to be driven like cattle. He's instead led like a sheep. And that is exactly what Isaiah, five chapters later, three chapters later, says about Jesus. That this is what the suffering servant would do. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't argue. He didn't fight back. He didn't scream like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was not cattle being driven. He was a lamb being led. Our Lord Jesus is brutally and unjustly executed this night, but make no mistake, friends, he is no victim. He's no victim. He's laying down his life willingly. He says elsewhere in scripture, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He is no victim. He's in complete, sovereign, total control every step of the way. Verse 17, again, they take him to a place called Golgotha. Verse 18, and there they crucified him with two others on either side and Jesus in between them. Golgotha, the place of the skull. This is where Jesus ultimately is crucified. Large spikes would be driven through his hands or his wrists, one for each wrist nailed to a wooden cross. And one spike would be driven between both of his ankles, through both of his ankles rather. They'd do this while he was laying on the ground. Secure him firmly on the cross. A hole was previously dug. And they would take the cross and they would lift it high and drop it into the hole. And sometimes just the jarring motion of the cross settling down into the hole. Additional trauma on top of all the other pain and agony. And all this while splinters now are ripping into his flesh. He's naked. He's shamed. The purpose is to shame him. He's just brutalized now on this cross. Crucifixion would be a slow, agonizing, brutal, painful death. And ultimately, the cause of death oftentimes would be asphyxiation. Your arms would be suspended and with your feet, with the nail in, in, in your ankles, you'd have to push up to try to 
suck some more oxygen in and eventually you'd get too weak to do that and your lungs would just collapse. You'd cease breathing. You would suffocate. That'd be the ultimate cause of death most of the time. And this is where Jesus dies. This is how he dies. Bloodied, naked, shamed for all to see. This is the day. This is the event. This is the hour that Jesus came for. And friends, this make no mistake, this is the darkest, most brutal, most terrifying day in human history. But for Christians, it's also the most glorious and treasured day. How could that be? Why? What exactly is happening on this cross? What is being accomplished here? And why is God subjecting himself to this kind of treatment and torture? I just want to look at three reasons, friends, three different aspects of the cross, what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. And the first is this, that Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin. Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin. See, friends, our greatest problem, man's greatest problem is not the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing right now. Our greatest problem is a sin pandemic. Our greatest problem is not biological, it's theological. Our greatest problem is not physical, but spiritual. As great as physical problems can be, spiritual problems are spiritual problems. Man, as a race, our spiritual problem is infinitely greater than any physical problem. Every single man and woman to ever live is infected by the virus of sin and is guilty of the crimes against God of sin. The Bible says it this way, all, without exception, have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every man, woman to ever live since our first parents, Adam and Eve, have fallen short of the glory of God, have sinned against God. All of us, to varying degrees, have not obeyed the commands of God, have not sought the wisdom of God, have not honored the rule of God, have not esteemed the majesty of God, have not worshipped God in His glory, and have not loved His person. See, all of that is sin. All of that is sin against God. Don't think of sin as just the worst of the worst. Right? Murder, rape, tyranny, oppression, slavery... Don't just think of sin as the worst of the worst. Of course, all of those things are terrifying sins. But sin is not only the worst of the worst. Sin is our disposition towards God, one of ignoring God and not needing God. And ultimately, we all, to varying degrees, put ourselves on God's throne. We want to run our own lives. We don't want to submit to God. We want to make the rules. We don't want God's rules unless we like them. We want to decide who we get to be. We don't want to listen to who God says we are. All of that, ultimately at the root, are acts of idolatry and us worshiping ourselves and putting ourselves in God's seat. That is sin against God. And all men, all men, all women, everywhere in every time have sinned against God. Not to mention our sin against our fellow man, selfishness, pride, envy, deceit. Okay, list goes on and on. All of us have sinned. And sin then has disconnected us from God, but furthermore, it has set us against God. The Bible says that we're actually by nature enemies of God, that we're at enmity with God, that the 
the fleshly mind, the non-Christian mind, the non-redeemed mind is hostile towards God. Okay, we're set against God. Now listen, maybe you've heard something like this. Listen, God isn't actually angry, he's just hurt. And you're not really evil, you're just sick. God doesn't really have wrath against sin. He just wants all of his children just to come just to come back to his fold and he just wants to heal them all. Okay, maybe you've been taught something like that. Well, all of that is untrue, at least very severely incomplete. Our sin, the Bible is clear on this, our sin has actually kindled God's righteous wrath. And we have to understand that. Ephesians 5, verse 6, Paul lists a bunch of different sins. It's not an exhaustive list, he just lists a bunch of different things. And, and then in Ephesians 5, 6, he says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Our sin has incited and kindled God's wrath. We have to know that. We have to understand that God is just and holy and has wrath towards and for sin and therefore towards us by nature. Friend, we have committed sin against God and the penalty is just. Just as we would think it was just if a judge condemned and punished and sentenced a criminal who harmed you or who harmed your family, the more atrocious the crime, the worse the punishment you want for this criminal. And nobody would look at a judge and say, you know what? I'm feeling nice and kind, and I'm just going to let this criminal off. I know he wronged you and hurt you, but I want to be loving. And you'd say, that's not loving. That's not just. Any sane person would. When we come before God, we realize we haven't just sinned against another man. We've sinned against God. We haven't just sinned against another creature. We've sinned against the Creator. We haven't just sinned against another peasant. As bad as that would be, we've sinned against the King. We've committed sin against God and there is a just penalty over us for sin. And friends, that is why the cross is necessary. That is why the cross is necessary. Jesus goes to the cross to pay that penalty, to pay our penalty, the penalty we owe for sin. Listen, the reason, the reason that we can say our sin is forgiven is because on the cross, Jesus completely and totally absorbed and satisfied all of God's wrath for our sin. Therefore, when we look to him in faith, we can now say our wrath, the wrath that we deserve, has been satisfied in Jesus. It's no longer looming over us. Therefore, we're forgiven. That sin has been paid for once and for all. That is why the cross is necessary. John 19, verse 30. Look there in your Bible. When Jesus received the sour wine, the last thing that he did on the cross, drank some liquid, and then he says this, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
No, the gospel author says he shouted in a loud voice, it is finished. And let me just tell you, friends, those are the three greatest words that we could ever hear. Those are the three greatest words we could ever hear. From Jesus' lips, as he's hanging on the cross, as he breathes his last, it is finished. What's finished? All the work to save and forgive and redeem sinful man. All of it is finished. You and I will never be good enough, we'll never be strong enough, we'll never be moral enough, we will never be able to earn favor with God. We have a massive debt of sin that we cannot pay, but Jesus is good enough, and Jesus is strong enough, and Jesus is powerful enough, and Jesus is kind enough, and Jesus comes and pays that debt. He pays that debt, and he pays it in full. He absorbs the whole wrath of God. The cup is all poured out on him, every single last drop. There is no wrath left for those who are in Christ and look to his work in faith. Jesus goes to the cross to pay for sin. Make us clean, washed, forgiven, new. See, friends, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin is often puffed up, fluffed up, make it look like a nice, big, happy, yeah, it's bad, but you know what? You're just, we're just sick. It's either fluffed up or played down. Sometimes it's flat out ignored, but even if it's not ignored, it's oftentimes just very incomplete or very distorted. We need to be clear on the doctrine of sin. When we downplay sin, friends, we downplay the cross. This is why it's so important. When we downplay sin, we downplay the cross. When we're unclear on the doctrine of sin, on what scripture says about sin, then we're going to be exceedingly unclear about the glory of the cross. If we don't understand the debt we owe, we will not understand the price Jesus paid. Just as a diamond shines most clearly and looks most beautiful against a backdrop of the darkest, blackest velvet, so it is with the cross against the backdrop of our sin. That's how we need to see the cross, friends. Jesus died to pay for sin. He died to pay for all of our sin. Number two, Jesus went to the cross in love. Jesus died in love. He did not have to go and pay for sin. He chose to in love. The glorious, sovereign, eternal God comes to a fallen, sin-infected world with fallen human beings who are his enemies, who are in rebellion against him. And he comes to that world and gives all. Why? Why? Simple answer, love. All of it was motivated by love. All of it was motivated by God's love for lost people. John 3.16, a verse that you know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved, so he gave. God loved sinners. He loved those who were far off, wants to make them family, and so he gives. He sends his son, and Jesus comes in love. That's John 3.16. In addition, 1 John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, John says this, For God so, rather, excuse me, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Get those confused. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. By this, John says in his epistle, by this we know love, that he laid down his life 
for us. That is love. Every insult, every lie, all the mocking, every lash, every step toward the cross was, was taken in love. All of the pain was endured in love. And worst of all, all of the wrath of God was absorbed in love. All of it was in love. To such a degree that John says, this is how we know love. This, this is the ultimate picture, the ultimate standard, the clearest definition of love. Jesus laid down his life for us. That is how we know love. That is love. Friends, we look at our Lord Jesus on the cross and we see love. We see that is love. There it is on the cross. There it is. He would not be there hanging on the cross, if not for the love he has for you and for me. Number three, Jesus went to the cross to bring us to God. Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin. Jesus went to the cross in love. Jesus went to the cross to bring us to God. Through sin, because of sin, because of our sinful nature and our sinful choices and actions, we've been ousted from the presence of God. To be brought in brought back into the presence of God, we need a new righteousness. See, God is holy, we are unholy. God is perfectly righteous and we in sin are unrighteous. We cannot be in the presence of God. We're disconnected from God's presence, period. We need a new righteousness. And so Jesus on the cross, we need to know this, he not only takes our sin, but he also gives us his righteousness. A transaction is being made. Think about this. Every time you go to the bank or you go to the grocery store and you make a transaction, you exchange something. I want you to think about the cross. My sin, I give his righteousness, I receive. My sin, I give his righteousness, I receive. There's an exchange, a transaction. Not only is our sin forgiven, but we are positively righteous now because Jesus gives us his righteousness. Friends, here's what we need to understand is that it is through that righteousness and that righteousness alone that we are brought back to the family of God. Jesus says earlier in John's gospel, he says, no one can see the Father except by me, through me. This is what he means. It doesn't just mean Jesus has a toll booth on the way to God and we say, okay, I'm going the Jesus road. Hi, Jesus. It means that he has righteousness that we need and he must give that to us. We must receive that for us to be able to stand in God's presence and be connected to God and in community and fellowship and in the family of God. We need his righteousness and his righteousness alone. And friends, when we receive it, listen, God looks at his people and do you know what he sees? He no longer sees our sin. You might say, well, I still sin. I still have flesh. I'm still not perfect. God knows that. But what he sees in terms of how he values you and loves you and knows you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, the very same righteousness of Jesus. That is how much God loves us. He gives us his very own righteousness. So when God sees us, he sees us as his kids, just as Jesus is his son. He now sees us as sons and daughters, righteous like Christ. That is how we're brought back to God, friends. 
Fellowship is restored and family is renewed. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. On the cross, we see the gospel. On the cross, we see sin paid for. We see Jesus' love and we see reconciliation to God. That's the gospel. And friends, today, I want to invite you to respond to that. Wherever you're at in life, I want to invite you to respond to that. Maybe you're a non-Christian. Maybe you're tuning in to a sermon for the first time in years or ever. Maybe you've never heard these aspects of the cross, at least in this way, and you don't know Jesus and you've been rebelling against him and the Holy Spirit maybe has been convicting you of sin, I just want to invite you to respond. Repent of sin and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And he will give you the free gift of righteousness. Repent of sin and look to Jesus in faith. In him is the only true life, the only true way to God. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you've been disconnected from God and really not walking faithfully with God and maybe you made a profession of faith years ago but nothing ever really changed. So maybe you kind of think you're a Christian, maybe you're not. You're at least just not in a good place with God. I just want to encourage you as well, repent of your sin and, and turn to Jesus in faith. A bruised reed and a smoldering flax, God will not quench. We, we must Look to Jesus in, in brokenness with a contrite spirit, acknowledging I've sinned against you. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your righteousness because I can't do it on my own because, because, friends, we can't. We need what Jesus offers. It is the only solution to our greatest problem. And, friends, maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're a fellow church member or a Christian watching somewhere else. And I just want to invite you to rejoice in the cross, to rejoice in the cross. I also want to invite you to bring your sin to the cross, not for salvation if you're already saved. But friends, we must always, constantly, continually bring our sin to the foot of the cross and then we must live at the foot of the cross. We must remain at the foot of the cross. For us Christians, just want to say this, something for you to consider this week. It's hard to be proud. It's hard to be selfish. It's hard to be apathetic at the foot of the cross. So I invite you, friends, come to the foot of this cross where this Savior, the only true Savior, died and bled for you and I. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reveals to us all that Jesus did and accomplished. Thank you that you chose in love to come, Jesus, and die on a cross. Thank you that you endured all the pain, but even more importantly, that you endured all the wrath so that you could pay for our sin and bring us back into the family of God. And I just pray, Lord, for all of those watching, listening, that we would respond, that we'd respond by looking to you in faith, by repenting of sin, no matter where we're at, God, and receiving your fullness, your grace, and your mercy. In your good, holy, and kind name, amen.